Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, making big technology changes with a little trick of the trade. Suddenly the the process for migrating from an old technology to a new technology isn't that sort of big bang approach that we think about. You've done it piecemeal based on the budget that you're able to uh, that you're able to get your hands on. Success rule number one for your agency's chief data officer. Getting an understanding of the projects that are happening inside your agency is key to understanding where you are and how you can progress. And Congress's next step for agency cybersecurity. We need to know more about the nature and scope of the attacks that different entities face and what security measures are most effective in reducing their level of cyber risk. It's Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Pentagon is pressing pause on the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability contract. The Chief Information Officer at the Pentagon, John Sherman, says the new award timeframe is December. Mark Pomerlow is writing about it at fedscoop.com. Mark, what's the reason that the Pentagon is pressing pause on this until December? December. So the reason that they, they decided to essentially press pause is uh, as they got into this process, they realized that there was a little bit more that had to be done than they initially thought. Uh, you know, back in November, they invited four companies to essentially compete for this. And as they started doing their due diligence and working with the companies, they realized there was a lot more work behind the scenes that had to be done. So they wanted to uh, brief the members of the press and be as transparent as they as they could and letting everybody know that, you know, the initial time frame that they set out last summer of April isn't really realistic. So um, they've said that they're really firm and comfortable with the December timeframe and don't expect any other changes between now and then. You pointed out a number of things in your story that's up on fedscoop.com right now that uh, pertain to what's going on more broadly in the cloud world. You referenced the fact that each of the services is undertaking their own cloud efforts. What does that look like in the context of this, which, and you also write about this as a replacement for Jedi, which had geez, years of problems behind it. Sure. Um, officials have said that they're not going to be mandating that uh, the services or anybody move to a JWCC. They've referenced that combatant commands in these so-called fourth estate agencies are the priority. Uh, the hope is that... Um, as JWCC comes online, others like the services who, as you referenced, are pursuing their own individual cloud efforts, they'll see the benefits and they'll try to migrate to this JWCC effort uh, as it begins to prove itself over time. One of the things about your story that's striking, too, is uh, the, the truncated timeline, it sounds like to me. You write about 60 days after award, there'll be access to classified services, uh, access to unclassified capabilities immediately on award, and no later than 180 days after the award you write there'll be access to top secret and tactical edge services that's a pretty fast turnaround isn't it that is a, a really fast turnaround um and, and it's it's interesting given that uh, officials were, were pretty blunt in saying that this is an unprecedented undertaking for the department a multi-cloud uh a multi-vendor uh, enterprise cloud capability so um it seems that that they're pretty confident in uh being able to get access immediately uh one of the things that that these officials stressed to us yesterday was um that they're using some some pretty uh, advanced and modern uh, cloud service providers. Um, you know, one of the things that they said is they're not buying uh, yesterday's technology today. So I, I think that they believe that given these cloud service providers are, are using modernized technology and are at the cutting edge, that they'll be able to hit the ground running.
running once this is officially awarded. All right. The big shadow behind all of this is Jedi, which I mentioned a moment ago. Um, a lot of the things that you just described, including the outdated technology and all of that, were some of the knocks against Jedi, the multi-award as opposed to the single award, which Jedi was going to be. Um, the challenge, I think, that um, John Sherman is up against is the things that he's saying, which are all the right things, and we have no reason to believe they're not true, are all the same things that Dana Deasy said about Jedi, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This is on track. This is good. We're going to do this. And ultimately, it didn't happen. So it's I, I wonder what the 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 performance pressure may be inside the building and outside the building. Uh, on something like this. Sure. And, you know, as, as they told us, um, you know, they're not guaranteeing that any of these companies get this award, right? It, it, it could be four awards to these companies, um, each of which will uh, uh, have the opportunity to compete under task orders uh, that are, are, are issued or based on mission owner requirements. So I think that they're trying to introduce some level of flexibility into this contract based on what mission owners might need um, using kind of that multi-vendor approach as opposed to the single vendor approach, um, which again can kind of get you into vendor lock and um, maybe uh, uh, utilize outdated technology. They're, they're really stressing that that's not the case here and that um, they're really going to be at the cutting edge uh, here and that this will not be obsolete once it's actually awarded and deployed. Mark Parmelo, great reporting and a great debut on the Daily Scoop podcast. Welcome to the team. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Francis. Appreciate it. You can read more on JWCC and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Military and civilian CIOs will lay out their strategies for the cloud at the Public Sector Innovation Summit. It's coming April 14th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Every agency would have to inventory its legacy technology under a bill two senators have introduced. Senators Maggie Hassan and John Cornyn say the Legacy IT Reduction Act of 2022 would include three steps to cutting old tech in government. Jonathan Album is federal chief technology officer and principal digital strategist at ServiceNow. He's former chief information officer at the Department of Agriculture. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. Um, this bill, uh, Senator Hassan says, would require agencies to develop an inventory of legacy IT systems, require agencies to write modernization plans to update or dispose of their legacy IT systems, and require the Office of Management and Budget to issue guidance to assist agencies with identifying legacy IT and modernizing it. Don't we have that stuff already, Jonathan? Welcome. Well, thanks, Francis. Um, I think a lot of that exists in different forms. You're right. Uh, what what doesn't exist, in my opinion, is a very um, you know comprehensive definition of what legacy technology is. And, and in in the bill, uh, OMB would be required to create that. I think people have different perspectives on this definition of legacy. I worked with a guy um, who said legacy is anything that works. You know, because it it it's in the environment, it's working, um, but it might not be modern. So someone wants to wants to fix it. It's sort of the nature of, of the beast sometimes with, uh, you know, with IT organizations, you want the latest and greatest. But I think it really requires us to be thoughtful about how our organizations operate technology, um, really understand the systems that we have, how they work together, 
what's the data? How does that data flow through the environment? How does the workflow through the environment to serve the customer, to fulfill the mission? And there are some, uh, when you read in the bill, the things that would be required in in an inventory, there are a lot of those sort of attributes on a per system basis to to get that lay of the land. Yeah, you're right. I think those things have existed in, in various forms, whether it's budget submissions or enterprise architecture repositories or other things, but it's not necessarily all in one place. And it's not in a, in a, in a way that's easy to make decisions around uh, what needs to be changed, what needs to be modernized, and what are the priorities of those things. So when I read the bill, I felt like this was a way to bubble up a comprehensive view and a uh, plan towards migrating from older technologies to newer technologies where it makes sense and where that migration is really valuable because it reduces risk or it creates a better uh, opportunity to serve the customer. All right. You said the magic word, though, when you used the word budget, because I remember having these conversations with you when you were still the CIO at Agriculture. You knew where your legacy IT was. You knew what the systems were that were at greatest risk. And the problem that you had and the problem that I think a lot of CIOs have is budget. And the Technology Modernization Fund has uh, is supposed to be one tool for that. And Claire Martirano was on this program not too long ago and said they have $2 billion worth of projects and they have about $766 million in the fund right now. So that's the big issue here. And there's not anything that I see in this bill that would help that. It's right. not an appropriations bill, so that that makes sense. Yeah, that that's right. And you know, obviously, that is uh, that's a step that we have to be very thoughtful about. So the bill doesn't have funding. The TMF, you know, has has money, as you said. I think you know, Claire, when she was on the show, she said it needs ten billion dollars. We're not going to, you know, we're not, obviously we're we're not going to get there. They haven't even spent the money they have. So there there's something about um, understanding how agencies pay for IT comprehensively. That's very important, which isn't in the bill either today. But when you look across agencies, how they fund technology varies and how the uh, department's CIO is funded versus how agency programs are funded, you know, can be um, very different. And, you know, very often the, the department CIO, while they might have the, through FATAR or other pieces of legislation, a uh, authority over the funds, they're not their funds. They don't have true, uh, they don't truly have that budget under their, under their purview. And a lot of that money is tied into program requirements and other things. And I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, but it, it creates a situation where we don't know what the superset of uh, IT spending is. And, um, you know, when you look at the IT dashboard, it says there's about 80 billion in IT spend. I think there's probably quite a lot more that it's buried in either um, programs or in research or other kinds of technologies that if we had that complete view, well, we might be able to make better decisions. And if we had that uh, complete view about how individual agencies are funded, um, funding their IT, maybe we could work towards something that's more consistent. So we can take very similar approaches across the government as we look to modernize these different systems. And that that's, again, I look at this bill in an optimistic way as a uh, some important steps towards that more comprehensive, consistent approach. I appreciate your friend's definition of legacy systems, legacy IT, but that's unfortunately not terribly easy to codify it because pretty much there are a lot of systems in government that work right now. Is there, what, what is your sense of a more definitive definition of legacy? How does one know it when one sees it to determine yeah. this is something that really needs to be addressed now, or we can let right. this continue to work and address other priorities? 
Yeah. So, so when he, when this person would say that it was, it was really, you know, to point out that, um, you know, you might, you might think something is legacy because it's, you know, uh, air quotes old, you know, because it was built 10 years ago or it was built on a technology that you don't want to use today. It doesn't mean that that technology and that system's not secure. It doesn't mean that it doesn't meet the requirements and it doesn't mean that we can't maintain it with our staff or, you know, a contractor staff. So, the, the, you know, when you, within that statement, I think, are those attributes, you know, how easy, easily can you secure the technology? How easily can you maintain the technology? Do you really understand how and what the system is doing is it is that knowledge knowledge that's buried in a few employees that may retire and you know walks away if you have great documentation you have a great understanding of how the tech this system was built um, what it does how it's used and there are there's a team that can maintain it it might be it might be quote unquote legacy it might be old but it doesn't necessarily meet the criteria where it has to be the first system that you that you modernize. I also think that sometimes we get pushback in the IT community and CIO community. Well, this system uh, feels really old because maybe the user interface doesn't feel modern. The the guts of the system, uh, how it works, might be very good. But if we're we're really focused on uh, you know from a user community and what we see and how we interact, and if you don't have a modern user experience, you know that's another thing that people start to look at and say, well, this feels like a legacy technology and I have to replace it. So you know I I kind of advocate for thinking about um, platform technologies that might be able to overlay. Uh, systems of record or, you know, the, again, the quote, quote, legacy systems in our environments and being able to leverage the data on the, the, through those platforms and using modern technologies that are embedded into these commercial platforms, AI technologies, machine learning, RPA, and being able to use those technologies to integrate data from across systems to create um, a really beautiful modern user experience where someone can get all the information they need to do their job or use automation technologies to, to workflow complete solutions and, and digital workflows that can drive towards outcomes that uh, allow people to be focused on other aspects of their, of their work, the higher value jobs that we've talked about in the past. So, you know, if you can't leverage the data into a platform, if you can't maintain or secure a system, uh, if you don't know how it works or it's very hard to uh, you know, extract that knowledge from the few people that you have, those are the systems that I would call legacy that really need to be highlighted in, in, these, uh, in these inventories for which modernization plans are, are, are needed at that point. All right. The budget problem, too, that agencies are up against, and you know this very well from being in the chair, is if we decide now as the leadership of an organization that this is the next thing on our priority list, whatever those two, three, five things are for this year, they're probably going to go into the budget request for fiscal 24. And mm -hmm. they probably, they, they might get pushed to 25. And that means that given the track record that we're seeing from the Hill, you're not actually going to see dollars for that until February, March of 2025 is, is when right. you're likely to actually see that money as we sit here talking about these things in March of 2022. I can't even begin to think how one manages around that or, or, or manages through that, Jonathan. Well, you know, you have to be creative, obviously. And, you know, the, in addition to the you know, creativity that, you know, a lot of my colleagues in the sales communities have, 
have and demonstrated during the pandemic, there there are oftentimes, um, again, uh, platform technologies in these agencies that can be a place which is the uh, that you that you move technology systems or business requirements into, and you can um, piece by piece decommission a system by leveraging uh, again commercial platforms that you have, and by doing that, um, suddenly the the process for migrating from an old technology to a new technology isn't that sort of big bang approach that we think about. You've done it piecemeal based on the budget that you're able to uh, that you're able to get your hands on, and over time, that final decommissioning of the system can be can be less complex. Now, it doesn't work in every case, but if you're working under the budget conditions that you described, which are I think pretty accurate for the environment we're in, you need to have. Uh, a, a program or a process that gives you the opportunity to uh, migrate capabilities in phases. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's an ancillary, you know, uh, byproduct from that that's, that's a good thing. I think those kinds of approaches to modernization reduce risk. You know, big projects are, are known to fail. The smaller projects have a greater likelihood of success because you know you you have a um, you know a goal that's much closer at hand and you can uh, take corrective actions if you're if you're not meeting that you're not waiting multiple years you know you might be in the months or or you know um, you know weeks sometimes to get functionality into a place where people can access and see and see value and those things create a great momentum that can spur agency leadership to maybe redirect funds to further modernizations. Jonathan Album, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate the opportunity. I'll talk to you soon. You can read more about the legacy IT legislation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Thursday's show, the modernization plan at the Commerce Department's Bureau of Industry and Security. Its Chief Information Officer, Nagesh Rao, is here. That show debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Advice on using data for evidence-based policymaking is coming for data practitioners across government. It's another example of how data and the people who manage it are becoming more integrated into government operations. Donna Roy is Strategic Advisor for National Security at GuideHouse. She's former Executive Director of the Information Sharing and Services Office at the Department of Homeland Security and former Chief Operating Officer at the Consumer Financial Protection Board. Donna, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. It's the Advisory Committee on data for evidence building and they will be putting this uh this advice out for data practitioners all levels of government federal state and local the data itself obviously underpins anyone's ability to use it for decision making what's your sense of where we are on data in the federal government now welcome uh, thank you for um, having me and uh, I, uh, I it's a great question i i believe that we've got um uh, some agencies that are way ahead of the pack and the use of data, uh, and you can sort of uh, tell this by the types of acquisitions they're putting out, the types of projects that they're rewarding with awards, or, or the types of job postings they're out there, right? And so you can sort of see not just um, based on the news, but, but the, the uh, evolution. And then you, you know, look at the, uh, at the uh, agencies that are just getting started um, and, and so um, I, I'm much more concerned with how do we how do we learn from the agencies that are making great progress to teach those that are that are um, uh, just getting that flywheel starting. 
Um, and, you know, uh, historically, I think if you look at the length of the CBOs, really uh, about 14% of them, just a small amount of them have been in their job a year. So it takes, it takes a few years to get going on these. What can we learn from the job postings? I, that, that's a fascinating observation, I think. I, um, the, the number, it's not just the number of data scientists anymore. I, I, I look at job postings in two areas. The postings for people that are supporting a chief data officer or chief data functions, high level functions, um, that postings for um, machine learning, uh, AI. I also look at the postings for um, industry uh, and uh, the level of people they're hiring to support the CDOs and the infrastructure around them. And you'll you start seeing uh, much more comprehensive um, uh, postings in the, in the areas around data platforms, data infrastructure. And so there's been a lot of focus on data analytics, but the piece behind the data analytics, um, the data infrastructure, using the data, um, collecting it, curating it, sort of getting it ready for analyzing, that, that the, uh, the hiring around that piece has increased. And that, that leads me to believe people are doing more and more um, and the and ecosystem is building up. That sounds like that's a good outcome for the data community and government. That, that's a great outcome. Um, the second thing I'm, I'm seeing is that uh, where we're making progress, it's not directly related, surprisingly enough, to the level of maturity of technology, right? And so um, I'm seeing great progress in areas like at the State Department where we support um, quite a few projects. Um, the State Department's not known as a forward-leaning early adopter of technology, um, I would say, right? Uh, we know that. Um, but I would but some of the projects that there's that are succeeding, that are getting noticed, that are getting awarded by the CDO, um, they ran a, an award ceremony. They got over over a hundred uh, nominations for data projects um, that support the Evidence Act, and and I would say the ones that are winning are very much much more mature than I would expect. Um, they're taking um, unstructured data from uh, Excel spreadsheets, from from uh, emails, from all over. I mean, there's a tie-in there to the evidence-building sort of uh, uh, federal guidance that's going to come out, I think, is, you know, they're asking for two things, for in increased stakeholder engagement with the states, I think, and they're also asking for increased public-private partnership. And I think two separate reasons, really. Uh, one, the public-private partnership, I'm learning we can move much faster in industry uh, to show gains, right? And so I underestimated the uh, transparency needed for industry to be able to solve uh, the government's problems, right? And I assumed when I was a federal employee, I was talking as much as possible. People should know what I wanted. It's actually not the case. I think we could continue to increase because we can only be as good on the industry side as, as what we understand the requirements to be. And so the more we can increase that, uh, the better off we are. On the transparency with the states, um, often where the federal government goes, the state governments follow. Um, and I think because they are not funded uh, at the same level and uh, their access to talent is not quite at the same level, um, they're looking for uh, increased transparency and what is working uh, in the federal government so that we can um, provide transparency on the infrastructure funding uh, that's going out there, so much infrastructure. And the, the, you know, the American public is going to want to make sure that the government's using that funding for the right things. So increasing transparency and increasing capability of the states, I think, is really what's going to come out of that report. 
You uh, said earlier that it's important to learn from the agencies that are making great progress. What are the agencies that are making great progress doing? Some of them that it seems to me have had a lot of success using data in particular are the inspector general offices. They've had data organizations for, uh, I think, a lot longer uh, than, than the bigger parts of the agencies themselves. I would, uh, I agree. Um, some of the great success came out of uh, the HHS OIG's office when they started uh, finding and um, arresting uh, bad actors around Medicare fraud. Um, I think they invest their, uh, the IGs were early adopters of understanding that data could get them uh, to a better place. Um, and so they put together uh, programs to use data. I think the one thing they did faster than others is they brought in the subject matter expertise, understanding the data along with the data scientists, along with the, the uh, program people to, to make sure that they get value out of data. That's also where I'm seeing uh, some of the success in the use of data. And so the OIGs, they understand that. I think that other mission enablers are understanding that often takes a PhD level, um, high level thinker to understand what pieces of that data are indicators of success. Uh, when you're talking about a program uh, in the government. All right. This is a good assessment, I think, Donna, of where we are today. What would a good assessment sound like of where we should be in the data community and the chief data officers community and government a year from now or two years from now? So there are 90 or so chief data officers as part of the federal chief data officer council. Um, and the council is doing a lot of great work, putting playbooks out, putting guidance on ethical use of data. Um, I would say that uh, the agencies who are just getting going should be thinking about how to put out acquisitions to support the infrastructure they need to do the right analytics. And, and I would also say that um, uh, getting an understanding of the projects that are happening inside your agency is key to understanding where you are and how you can progress. Donna Roy, great to talk to you as always. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. You can read more about data in government in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Decision makers from the Navy, the Jake Office at DOD, the State Department, and more agencies are coming to the Government Forum 2022. It's happening at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City, April 19th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. One of Congress's leading cybersecurity voices says technical debt is holding government back from securing its systems better. Congressman Jim Langevin's a co-founder of the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus. He was a member of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission at Scoop News Group's Cybersecurity Modernization Summit this week. Congressman Langevin says legacy IT is only one factor that's changing the cyber threat surface for governments. This aging digital infrastructure leaves them incredibly vulnerable to cyber attacks. As this technical debt is carried forward, their information systems and the services that rely upon those systems will become more and more susceptible to cyber-enabled disruptions. And that's something that should be setting off alarm bells for policymakers everywhere. The past few years have illustrated how important these entities are to our country. A ransomware attack against a state or local government could seriously impair its day-to-day functionality and jeopardize Americans' access to things like vital services such as unemployment insurance, uh, unemployment insurance, or vaccine scheduling. 
or in the case of a local school, university, or other educational institution, a ransomware attack could seriously jeopardize that institution's ability to fulfill its academic mission, especially in a time where many students have had to take classes virtually. Improving the cybersecurity of state, local, tribal, and territorial governments and higher education institutions is critical to ensuring these institutions can continue to provide the vital services upon which we all rely. That's not something these entities can do or should though take on alone. Uh, across all areas of cyber policy, we're grappling with the idea of shared responsibility, and I think it applies here as well. Eric Goldstein, CIS's Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity, said it best, and I quote, the responsibility needs to fall on the entity most able to mitigate the risk, end quote. I think this is a very useful conceptual framework. In the context of our state and local governments and our institutes of higher education or local school districts, I think it points to the capacity that uh, uh, cloud service providers have to help manage cyber risk for these organizations. But the federal government has a clear role to play here as well by providing the resources required to help our governments and schools make necessary investments in their cybersecurity, including through IT modernization. It also means helping them understand the cyber threats they face and the steps they can take to mitigate those threats. So I'm glad to be able to say that uh, we've made significant progress here. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act signed into law by President Biden last year included one of the biggest investments in state and local government cybersecurity that the federal government has ever made. It created the State and Local uh, Cybersecurity Grant Program, which provided $1 billion for state and local governments to use in shoring up their networks. And just a few weeks ago, in passing legislation to fund the federal government, Congress dramatically increased the funding for the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center. The MSISAC, as it's known, is a crucial organization supporting state and local cybersecurity, offering incident response capabilities, cyber threat uh, advisories, tabletop exercise, malicious domain blocking and reporting, awareness and education materials, and other essential services for state and local governments. The increase in funding will allow it to expand these essential missions. So there are significant uh, steps forward, uh, but of course I wouldn't be here speaking with you today if the job was finished. We have so much more work yet to do. Though through the rest of uh, this year in Congress uh, will be my, my last, I believe that we have a real window of opportunity to continue raising the bar in our state and local governments and in our local school districts and institutions of higher education when it comes to cybersecurity. I'll be looking for ways to make the most of that opportunity until my very last day in office. So one area that I'm currently exploring is how we can improve our empirical understanding of how well our cybersecurity policies and programs and technologies are actually working. We need to know more about the nature and scope of the attacks that different entities face and what security measures are most effective in reducing their level of cyber risk. So to that end, we need to collect beta, better data around the, the cyber ecosystem, including information about cyber incidents and the controls put in place to prevent them. A solution that I'm exploring to this challenge is creating a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. So this is a recommendation from the Cyberspace Solarium Commission for a statistical agency that would collect, process, analyze, and disseminate essential statistical data on cybersecurity. Ultimately, the goal is to help us better understand what's working and what's not in order to help us understand where to spend our next cybersecurity dollar. With a better understanding of causes and consequences of various types of cyber incidents and a clearer picture 
of what is working in preventing those incidents and what is not. State and local governments and institutions of higher education and local school districts would be better able to take more informed steps to manage their cybersecurity risks, and the federal government would be able to more efficiently provide the resources to help them to do it. Creating a Bureau of Cyber Statistics will be a priority of mine for this year, but I'll also be on the lookout for other opportunities to support state and local governments and local school districts along with higher education institutions as they work to defend themselves from cyber threats. And I sincerely hope to be able to work with all of you in that effort. So we have, I know, many uh, senior IT leaders and decision makers from state, local governments, higher education, and industry that are gathered here today. Your voices, input, and expertise are utterly essential to making real and effective progress in this space. It's why conversations like this are just so important. So I hope that you'll all engage with uh, my colleagues and I on cyber issues, both the ones that we covered today and those that we will undoubtedly need to address together in the future. Solutions to cybersecurity problems are not always easy, and we need to make sure that we get them right. But I'm optimistic about our prospects for continued progress if we work together. Congressman Jim Langevin at Scoop News Group's Cybersecurity Modernization Summit. You can find a link to watch the full-length video of that in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast, a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team can contributes. Nagesh Rao, the CIO at the Bureau of Industry and Safety, is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.